Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. And it is our pole position time I have again gone hunting for you guys to go out of the World War II sphere and I have found us an amazing historian about the early modern period. So I'm going to introduce to you guys Katarzyna Koshod, who is a research fellow at Northumbria University. Her main focus is on the early modern period, particularly Poland and Lithuania. Today we're going to be talking about two queens in Poland and Lithuania during the early modern period. Welcome. Hi, um, thank you so much for having me. It's great, it's exciting that we've, we've, I finally found someone, even out of the 20th century sphere, because it's just been insane trying to find historians that specialise in Polish history and that speak English outside of the sphere, so it's great, so thank you so much for joining us. Listen, you're here to talk to us about something that I'm going to learn a lot about, and I've been really excited because I read your work, and um, now you're going to tell us all about this time period that is very rarely spoken about, especially, I mean, in Poland, obviously, but uh, it's spoken about, but outside of Poland, I mean, it's, it's amazing. So let's learn about uh, Bona Sforza. Uh, tell us a little about her in the early years. Who was she and um, where did she come from? Um, so Bona Sforza um, was the daughter of the Duke of Milan, Gian Galazzo Sforza and Isabella D'Aragona um, of Naples. Um, And she was born around 1494, we're not quite sure. Um, The problem is that her father is ousted um, from Milan by his cousin, Ludovico Mora Sforza, so the family are exiled. And um, Gian Galazzo dies quite soon, around the time Bona is born. Um, So Bona and her mother Isabella moved to Naples where Isabella's brother is the king of Naples. Um, and she is brought up in, the, in South Italy. Um, Bona's auntie, um, so Gian Galazzo's sister, Bianca Sforza, is the Holy Roman Empress. So she's the wife of Emperor Maximilian I. Um, and it is Maximilian I who arranges Bona's marriage. Um, to Sigismund Jagiellon um, as part of this kind of um, Polish Habsburg alliance. Um, so this is um, where where the decisions are made about Bona coming to Poland. So how was she actually described by the Polish ambassadors? 
The Polish ambassadors come to fetch her um, from Italy to bring her to Poland. And she gets really good press. Um, she's apparently beautiful. She's got golden hair, um, but black eyes and black eyebrows. And they say she has rosy cheeks, which is the kind of, which is fitting with a gender description about timidity and virginity. Um, but importantly, they describe her as highly educated. Um, so she speaks Latin fluently without preparation beforehand, um, which I don't think I could do. Um, and this is testament to, the, to her excellent upbringing and her excellent Renaissance education provided by her mother, Isabella. She actually sounds pretty remarkable. Yes, she is very clever, um, very um, politically kind of astute. She's an impressive, impressive person. So then she arrives to Poland in 1518 to marry her new husband, Zygmunt. What happens then? Um, so she arrives with great pomp and circumstance. Um, um, everyone in Poland-Lithuania is excited. Um, there has never, never been a, an Italian bride before for a Polish king. But Bona now has to navigate her new reality, which is a very unique um, political system um, which governs Poland-Lithuania. So first of all, um, the monarchy is elective. Um, the Jagiellonians, um, so the dynasty from which Sigmund comes, um, are a Lithuanian dynasty who are being elect, members of which are being elected um, to keep the personal union between the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. So we have a composite monarchy. Um, also, um, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is governed by a republican political system. Um, and this system gives much privilege to the nobility who have a lot of political rights. Um, and the parliament in Poland is very important. The king has no legislative powers, so the king cannot make any new laws. And the parliament also has to agree to all new taxes. So this is a very different reality for Bonner, which she has to navigate. For one, she's not sure whether um, her son, um, Zygmunt August, is going to be elected. So is he the heir to the throne or is he just a kind of prince who might not become king? But um, the marriage goes well at the beginning, especially um, there's a kind of affectionate marriage between Zygmunt and Bonner, and they have five healthy children between 1519 and 1526, including um, a male, Zygmunt August. So she's done well for herself um, in, the 19, in the 1520s. I like how you said that she's done well for herself in the 1520s because it just doesn't go really well for her in 1527, does it? Because she ends up having a miscarriage. Um, yes. Tell, talk to us. Tell us, how does this stain her reputation? Um, so Bonner has already had five healthy children. In 1527, she's pregnant again. Um, and 
one of the favorite entertainments of royalty everywhere on the continent is hunting. Um, so Bora, a few months pregnant, um, takes part in a bear hunt. Um, and the bear has been brought especially for this in a crate from the Lithuanian forests. Um, uh, the way it's described, Bona holds back, um, but the beast is quite um, wild and vicious and saddles and wounds several men and then unexpectedly um, charges at Bona. Um, uh, Bona's horse trips, um, attempting to flee, and she falls off. Um, and the same evening, she miscarries a boy who is um, quickly christened Albert, and then she never has any more children after that. Um, so this has quite a significant um, um, effect on her reputation later, even though at the time, well, first of all, it's okay for pregnant women, especially queens, to take part in this sort of activity. Um, in other countries, you have pregnant queens leading armies, like, for example, in Spain. Um, so this is fine. There is no remark made about it in the contemporary sources. But some modern historians looking back, um, because the Jagiellonian dynasty is extinguished with Bonas' son, Zygmunt August, um, he dies childless. They say this is the event that ended the Jagiellonian dynasty. So it's a sort of what if argument. What if little Albert lived? Um, whereas when you think about it, Bonner actually had five children um, and it is Zygmunt August who kind of failed to provide a Jagiellon heir, even though he did have three wives. So I think the judgment there is a little bit unfair on her. No, I totally agree. I really agree on that because it, it, she, she made a mistake. She made a simple mistake. It's, it's her son who, like you said, three wives. I mean, how can you not produce an heir with three wives? Especially since he had lots of illegitimate children as well. So I think um, judgment should be more on him perhaps than on her. For ending the dynasty. Yeah, I agree. I, I completely, I completely <laughs> agree with you on that. But listen, so she actually ends up gaining um, more political power. I mean, how does she get from this moment of having a miscarriage to becoming like this incredibly powerful, politically powerful woman? Um, throughout the 1920s, uh, the 1520s, um, sorry, um, Bona is very actively involved in politics. Um, she doesn't believe in stepping back or taking a kind of queenly role of just counselling gently. She's definitely active. Um, she has a good relationship with Zygmunt, with Zygmunt, with Zygmunt which helps a lot. Um, and she built her own political faction by influencing um, appointments to offices um, and makes friends uh, with people like Zygmunt's secretary um, and also some important um, other noblemen and bishops. Um, and really, she has three objectives. The first is to strengthen the Aguilonian dynasty at home 
and is, she does this, for example, by getting the, well, she and Sigmund both, get the nobility to agree to elect their son, Sigmund August, while his father is still alive. So actually, from 1529, when little Sigmund is elected, Poland Lithuania has two kings, the old Sigmund and the young Sigmund. Um, her second objective is to counter the Habsburg influence in the area, in the region, especially by supporting um, Hungarian independence. Um, and her third objective is a French and Ottoman alliance to help um, with, with countering the Habsburg influence. Um, so she becomes enormously influential. She helps create both the Polish internal policy and foreign policy as well. She ends up getting really wealthy, though, at the same time. I mean, how does she achieve that? Um, yes, she does indeed. Um, and we have to remember first um, that she has some positions in Italy, some lands. Uh, Bona is Duchess of Bari and Rossano in her own right. So this is inherited from her mother, Isabella of Aragon. Um, and on top of that, uh, once she arrives in Poland, she obviously gets the Polish Queen's Dower, but also on top of that, she gets um, gifts from Zygmunt, um, gifts of lands, in, especially in Lithuania. Um, and because she manages her lands really well, um, Zygmunt then allows her to start accumulating more land. And she does this by buying out the crown lands, so the, the, the lands that belong to the office of the king. Uh, and these lands were pawned to wealthy nobles for royal debt. So she starts buying these out. But, but instead of returning them to the kind of the royal office, she keeps them as the Jagiellonian property. And this is highly problematic because the Polish nobility thinks she's preparing a base for um, absolutism in Poland. Um, she also, in 1545, manages to exchange her standard queen tower uh, for the entire region of Mazovia. So this is where Warsaw is located, um, which brings her a lot of revenue as well. And she is the person responsible for developing Warsaw's infrastructure. Wow, I did not know that. Um, yeah, she's quite a remarkable uh, woman, Bona Sforza. Wow, um, that is some interesting. That, that is, do you know, do you, are there any, um, any buildings still standing that she would have, obviously because Warsaw was, was predominantly destroyed, but in the Second World War, but do we know, I know this is, this is just throwing a random question in, but is there anything still standing? Um, she lived in um, a palace in Uyazdorf, you might be familiar, which is now part of Warsaw, wasn't, yes. obviously in the 16th century. So um, she lived in a wooden palace, which has since been demolished, and then um, Zygmunt Vasa, um, at the end of the 16th, beginning of the 17th century, builds a new palace there. So unfortunately, the palace where she lives um, is no longer there, but the place still is. Oh, wow. There we go. 
piece of it, piece of really interesting history. That's that's well, because I love water personally myself, but but that's that's only because of the only because of the twentieth century. But <laughs> anyway, so with um, with incredible power, obviously, come political enemies, because then eventually public accusations start. I mean, how do we get to that point? Yes. Um, so we have to remember that Bonner has her own faction, which is anti-Habsburg, pro-French and Ottoman. But there is another faction at the Polish court, which is very much pro-Habsburg. Um, and, you know, by 1530, um, there is certainly a sense that Bonner is all-powerful. And people comment on it. Um, and she's, for example, compared to someone like Louise of Savoy in France. Um, so a woman with a lot of power and the Polish nobility are not very happy with that um, because the parliament should be the centre of power and they think the Queen has accumulated too much influence. Um, so from in about 1535, there are some secret letters exchanged by the members of the rival faction and these include the Vice-Chancellor, Piotr Tomicki, but also the Bishop of Helm, Samuel Maciejowski, both very influential figures. So they complain about the education of the young kin, king. So we mean here Zygmunt August, who's already, remember, elected and crowned while his father is still alive to subvert the Polish elective system. Um, and so Bona keeps her son within her own court, chooses his tutors and controls his education. And the nobility are not happy with that because this is already the king of Poland. Um, so the idea is to substitute the tutors chosen by Bona. Um, and this means also separating her from the boy and in this way subverting her influence because as a queen consort, her son is the kind of centre of her influence. So then this um, all culminates in an event um, hilariously called Chick the Chicken War yeah. in 1537. Um, and this is um, when the nobility gathered for a parliament without the king, which is potentially rebellious. And it is called the Chicken War because... There were no casualties except for the chickens who were devoured <laughs> in this gathering. Um, what they end up doing is presenting Zygmunt with a list of demands. And these include removing Bonner from position of influence, which is granted by her oversight of Z young Zygmunt August. They also want her to return the crown lands she's bought. Um, back to the royal domain. Um, so this is where Bonner's power really starts um, to be shaken um, at this point. I need you to tell me, are the rumours true that she poisoned her children and was she really cold and uncaring to them as she was so often portrayed? Um, there are some rumours, uh, which by, especially by the 20th century, become these ridiculous uh, kind of um, stories. Um, 
there is there is there are some rumors at the time as well um especially that she poisons her daughter-in-law um, in 1543, young Zygmunt August is married to Elizabeth of Austria. So notice there that that um, this was against Bonner's anti-Habsburg anti policy. Elizabeth of Austria is a Habsburg. Um, and Bonner absolutely hates her, makes her life at court miserable. For example, by refusing young Elizabeth parmesan cheese, which she knew Elizabeth really liked. Um, and so there are rumours when Elizabeth dies in 1545, so only two years after the marriage, there are rumours that Bonner poisoned her. But actually, Elizabeth was quite severely ill with epilepsy, so this is the more likely cause. Uh, but by the 20th century, the legend has evolved that she has poisoned young Elizabeth with the Polish dumplings or pierogi um, using rat poison, which is, has a very little grounding in, in historical evidence. Um, there is also very little evidence that Bona was a cold and uncaring mother. Um, in fact, she went to great lengths to ensure um, that her children had a secure future, um, especially by manipulating the nobility into electing um, young Zygmunt August, so this ensured that he succeeded his father on the throne. Um, she was also caring to her four, a caring mother to her four daughters, um, and also to um, her husband's daughters from his first marriage. Um, there is so there is very little evidence that she was um, cold or, or uncaring, and I think this is part of this. Um, sort of black legend that develops around Bonner um, based on the 16th century accusations made against her that she was a bad mother, but then developed in the 19th and 20th century. So let's talk about her downfall. I mean, what is her fate? Where does she end up? Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So Bonas, like you said Bonas' power is already shaken um, by um, 1537 and then uh, with her failure to prevent her son's marriage, marriage to a Habsburg princess. Um, 
Then the relationship with Sigmund August deteriorates even further um, because, so his first wife, Elizabeth of Austria, dies in 1545. And then in 1548, it transpires that he got married in secret to um, Barbara Radivio, who was a, a widow and a local, kind of a local noble woman, one of his subjects. So there is a great scandal um, because everyone disapproves of the marriage. Um, his father, Zygmunt, dies in 1548, which some people say is that the news actually killed him. Um, and Bona obviously highly disapproves. And in order to show this disapproval, she moves away from court to Mazovia. So she, that's where she starts living in Uyazdorf. Um, because she's a widow now, um, she loses much of her influence. Um, she doesn't really have influence on her son because their relationship has deteriorated. Um, the nobility, um, m many of the nobility dislike her uh, because of the issue of the crown lands. Um, and so in 1556, Bona decides that her future in that her political career in Poland is over. And she decides to pack up and move back to Italy uh, because remember, she is still the Duchess of Bari and Rossano. Um, so she moves back to Italy where she lives for about a year be before she is poisoned um, by her closest confidants. Uh, possibly um, this was commissioned by the Habsburgs. And then, the, and then Philip II of Spain um, takes her Italian possessions after she um, died. So a rather sad end for this very powerful, clever, um, fantastic woman. I feel really sorry for her. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, there are these sad glimpses of her deteriorating relationship with her son, where she tries to arrange meetings with him while he's hunting in the forest. Um, and it never quite works. And also, Zygmunt August becomes convinced that she's a poisoner. Um, so coming back to what we talked about, so to any meetings with her, he starts wearing gloves. So there is a very ugly family um, rift there at the heart of Bonas um, losing her power. Do you know what? I just, it's, it's just sad. It is just truly sad. But we actually do end up talking about a second queen um, in our little chat here. And I don't know if this is, we're going to be much more cheery, really, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> because the second queen we're talking about today is Anna uh, Jagiellon. So tell us a bit about her and how was she related to Bonner? Well, actually, Anna is Bonner's great legacy because she is Bonner's fourth child. She's Bonner's daughter. Um, she's born in 1523, um, daughter of Bonner and Zygmunt. Um, she grows up a Polish princess. Um, and there is this idea about her, especially in, in, in Polish historiography, as this sort of weak, 
slightly pathetic spinster because she remains unmarried. Um, whereas, in fact, I think she's much cleverer um, than she's given credit for. And hopefully we'll manage to unpack some of this um, in the next few minutes or so. Well, what was her relationship like with her mother? Because obviously we, we've got the rumours here that, that, that Bonner was a, a horrible, horrible mother. But what, what's the actual truth behind it all? Um, there, there is little known about the relationship. We have a few documents. But I think it's very significant that Anna and two other of her sisters move away from the court with Bonner to Mazovia um, following Sigmund August's scandalous marriage. Um, so they all four of them move away in protest about this. And she lives with Bonner um, until Bonner decides to move back to Italy. And one of the um, things being said about um, Bonner is that she was an uncaring mother because she failed to arrange marriages for her daughters. Um, and actually, Bonner repeatedly pleads with Sigmund August to arrange marriage, uh, to arrange marriages um, for her daughters, which is actually his responsibility. Um, but um, he fails to do that for a long time. Um, so Bonner is trying to fulfill her duties towards her children, but it's very hard with her deteriorating influence. But I think there is certainly loyalty um, shown by her daughters, including Anna, um, when they move away from Krakow with their mother. So let's talk a bit about Anna and how she gets elected as queen, because that happens after her brother's death. But she isn't immediately elected. I mean, what happens? How, does, how do we get to this point? So this is quite extraordinary. And I don't think a similar um, thing ever happened, really in European history. Um, but yes, Anna is actually elected um, a Queen of Poland. But before that happens, um, her brother, who has reigned um, for a long time, uh, Zygmunt August, dies in 1572. So remember, um, the Polish nobility kept electing Jagiellonians to the Polish throne in order to keep the union between the Kingdom of Poland and the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. But Zygmunt August doesn't have any sons and so in 1569, before he dies, um, the Polish and Lithuanian nobility decide to make the union constitutional. So it's no longer dependent on the Jagiellonian dynasty which means that after Zygmunt August dies, um, anyone can be a candidate in the election. I mean, anyone. Um, by anyone, I really mean uh, people from the royal and princely houses of Europe. So in 1572, there is an election and you have a Habsburg candidate. Um, you have Ivan IV of Russia as a candidate, but also Henry. Valois, Duke of Anjou. So because, of, because Anna is the only relative left in Poland, there are two sisters 
um, as well. One of them is the Queen of Sweden, Catherine, and the other, Sophie, is the Duchess of Brunswick. But Anna is the only one left in Poland. Um, and so she gets um, an enormous inheritance from Sigmund August. And the nobility kind of argue with her, refuse to ratify the will, um, the last will of Sigmund August. But actually what they realise is that whoever they elect to be the next king of Poland will have to marry, get married to Anna in order to secure this massive wealth for the Commonwealth, for Poland-Lithuania. Um, and so Anna becomes quite significant in the election, um, also because she is very influential in Mazovia. Um, so she has a lot of influence with the nobility there. Um, and she starts eventually supporting um, Henry Valois, who kind of promises to marry her as well. Um, and he is the one um, who gets elected um, in 1573. Um, he comes over to Poland in 1574, in January, arrives in January. Um, and uh, Henry is in his early 20s, and Anna is in her, is in her early 50s. So he cannot be too enthused by the prospect of getting married to Anna. Um, also, that means renouncing the prospect of having children because she is uh, now in her 50s. Um, and he's not very comfortable in Poland, um, but um, an opportunity arises for him when his older brother, Charles IX of France, dies um, Henry famously um, escapes um, Poland, leaves the castle through the bakery at night, um, takes some jewellery with him, leaves a letter <laughs> for his subjects. Subjects, wait for me, I'm going to return. Um, and, and legs it, basically. The Poles chase him to the border, um, but... He, unfortunately, he flees to become um, Henry III of France. So you can imagine there is a, a chaos. The first election, the first free election, was not very successful. Um, and what they start, what the Polish nobility start realizing that Anna, with her wealth and with her Jagiellonian um, dynasty connotations, is the person who can stabilize the, the torn Commonwealth. Um, so they depose Henry, <laughs> and for, the, the unfortunate Henry is deposed, no longer the King of Poland, and they start a new election in 1575. Isn't this where uh, Stefan Batore comes into the narrative? Yes, indeed. Um, so the election is quite turbulent. A lot of people support um, Maximilian Habsburg, um, but quite a lot of the nobility think that Anna is the solution um, to their problems. She's the person to provide the continuity, to provide financial stability to the Commonwealth. Um, so for a while, they toy with the idea 
of having a queen regnant. Um, you know, there's an example of this. Elizabeth I is on the throne of England. And this actually comes out in the debates. And they're not doing too badly over there. So maybe, maybe having a queen regnant isn't such a bad thing. But in the end, they elect Anna, but also Stefan Batore, who is the, um, the Duke of Transylvania. Um, so he is a, a Hungarian noble, nobleman. Um, he is anti-Habsburg. Um, and so um, the couple are elected. Um, they get married once Stefan arrives in, in Krakow and are crowned as king and queen. So Anne, de facto, Anna becomes a queen consort. Tell me. How was their marriage? Well, poor Anna really um, does not have very much luck um, with men. Um, again, Stefan is 10 years younger than she is. Um, so there is no children. Um, and at the beginning of their marriage, she keeps waiting for him every night to come to her bedchamber um, occasionally she waits as long as until, you know, 3 a.m. in the morning, but he very rarely c comes. Um, he spends much time at war. He's this great kind of military leader. Um, and so usually he's not in Krakow. Um, so Anna actually um, is busy with her other projects, which particularly you'll be interested um, her favourite project is developing Warsaw's infrastructure. Um, for example, oh, a bridge over Vistula, which was started by her brother, Sigmund August. So she keeps um, Warsaw, um, she, keeps the, she keeps developing Warsaw's infrastructure. So continuing Bonner's great work. But also this means... Um, that she keeps um, her influence on the Mazovian nobility. Um, she is their great lady. She's smart. She's smart. But, you know, when you're speaking about her and her marriage, it, it makes rings alarm bells, and I want to really compare her to Mary I. Is that possible? Do you think there is a comparison? It, it is a comparison that actually shows how different they were. Um, so Mary, English an English princess, Anna, a Polish princess. Um, however, Anna, in the Polish political system, has no hereditary right to the throne, um, like Mary does in England. Um, so she is um, elected by the Polish nobility, but it's because she's a good candidate there is some sentiment for the Aguilonian dynasty, but also her enormous wealth. Um, so also she wasn't a queen regnant. Um, the nobility chose a husband for her um, who became king. And Anna basically um, had to become a queen consort. Um, so you could, you could think, you could say that they come, the they, be, they begin, um, Mary and Anna begin with very, in very similar circumstances, but the different political systems um, 
make their careers very different. So um, Stefan Bacola then dies, obviously with no heirs. How does Anna try and save the Jagiellonian dynasty? Um, yes, Batory dies on, after 10 years on, of, on the Polish throne. Um, there is, as you say, no heirs. And by, by that time, the Jagiellonian dynasty is all but extinct, really. Um, so we have Anna. Um, also, we have to remember that Anna has sisters, one of them was Catherine, Queen of Sweden. Um, and Catherine has two children, um, Zygmunt and Anna. So um, our Queen's, uh, Queen Anna's um, nephew and niece. And so, but they're, you know, they're of the Vasa, Swedish Vasa dynasty. But when the election comes in 1587, Anna decides to throw her weight behind her nephew. Um, so she keeps sending out letters about how similar he is to his mother, his Jagiellonian mother. Um, she also is very, she's very clever. So she starts um, handing out offices to people in order to encourage them to support her nephew. She also... Um, very cleverly, she masters this rhetoric of the service to the Commonwealth. Um, and so she puts money in the Treasury. And she always sends envoys to the Parliament to ask if they need anything, if she can be of any use. So she is incredibly clever. Um, so um, young Zygmunt Vasa becomes Sigmund III of Poland, Lithuania, um, and this allows Anna to keep exercising her influence, um, this time as his aunt, and she kind of adopts this air of being his mother, because his, his actual mother, Queen Catherine of Sweden, is dead at that point, so Anna takes on this role, and she always signs her letters to him, um, your aunt and mother. Um, so she in, exercises influence over appointments, for example. We have lots of letters. I was recently looking at those with my students. And she, in one letter, she chastises Zygmunt for not writing um, to her enough. Um, and she says, when, when he summons her to Krakow, she says, I will not only come, but I will hurry um, she also finds some actual, she finds some happiness in her personal life. Um, Zygmunt's sister, um, another Anna, uh, comes with him from Sweden and becomes a companion um, to her aunt. Um, also, um, Zygmunt has children who become the, the kind of joy um, for Anna to enjoy in her old age. I like that. At least something positive comes out of this whole thing. Because it's, it's just been all negative. It's been a whole negative podcast up until this very moment. You've given us a little bit of a little bit of brightness that something good came out of Anna's life. Definitely, I think Anna is the great legacy of her mother, um, and 
there is so much turmoil, um, so much unhappiness. You know, people keep talking about the Tudors, making programs about the Tudors. I think the Jagiellonians deserve their own television series because it would be just, I think, just as dramatic, just as good as you know the Tudors. I agree, I agree. So if there's anybody <laughs> from the TV station or a producer listening to this right now, you need to make a TV show about this dynasty and make sure that Katarzyna is your, um, what do you call it, historian that's going to consult on the programme. Okay, <laughs> let's do this. Let's do this. I think it's a fabulous, fabulous idea. But listen, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was absolutely <laughs> brilliant. I mean, we stepped out of the box of the second world of the 20th century and we talked about something just as exciting as the Tudors, where we, there was just too much, it's just so much drama and we need to hear more. So we definitely got to get you back on to talk about something else during this time period. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely to speak to you. Join us a bit later on when Luciana Harrison and Sally McGlone will both be here individually to give us a 100-year history of women in the RAF, basically. They'll be starting right at the beginning, and between them, they'll be bringing us right up to the present day. It, they go together so well, these podcasts, that we're releasing them as, as one episode. Uh, it's great. It's going to make you so proud, girls. It really is. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.